States is a record of the genealogy, and again, I read it to you because it's a record, an historical record of the lineage, the historical lineage of Christ, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Hello and welcome to the broadcast of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. Weekly Pastor Chris Reiser, who has been our pastor for approximately 15 years, will be teaching through the study of the book of Matthew. Now, while these messages were first presented starting in 2013, the timeless truths and principles found in God's words are still applicable to today. Throughout this study, you will come to learn that Jesus is the King, the Messiah who is worthy of our praise and worship. So we invite you to grab your Bible and turn to the book of Matthew as Pastor Chris starts by first introducing us to the book of Matthew. Next portion is from 417 to 1620. So the first one is the introduction of the king. 417 to 1620 is the life of the king, giving us the body of his life and ministry. And then from 1620, where again we have that transition, to 2820, we have the passion of the king, we have the discussion of the events that lead to his death and then his burial and his resurrection. So essentially the introduction of the king, 1, 1 to 416, the life of the king, 417 to 1620, and the passion of the king, 1620 to 2820. That's one way to divide it up. Now also within that then, and again this will be helpful to you as you read it to just kind of give you pegs to hang your study on, is that there are five major discourses or presentations of the preaching of Jesus with a summary statement at the end of each one. It's not the same phrase, but at the end of each of these periods of teaching, Matthew kind of summarizes what he did or what he said, and then says he moves to the next thing. So the first set of Jesus' teaching, our first major sermon, is in chapters 5 through 7. That's the Sermon on the Mount, where he starts with the Beatitudes and moves all the way through, and we're pretty familiar with that. Then the next major area or where verses strung together, a sermon of Jesus comes in chapter 10, another sermon in chapter 13, another sermon in chapter 18. Again, not that Jesus didn't say things or Matthew doesn't record Jesus saying things in between. Just simply, these are major sermons presented by Jesus. He was a preacher. So 5 through 7, chapter 10, chapter 13, chapter 18, and then a major sermon on, of all things, eschatology in 23 to 25, where Jesus the prophet speaks of what will happen in the future talks about what's going to go on, prompted by some questions from his disciples. So if you want to kind of study those major sermons, you can do that as well, 5 to 7, 10, 13, 18, and 23 to 25. So as you study and as you read, maybe that will help you to kind of organize your thoughts, your thinking, as you are reading this. I mean, it's a big book. There's a lot of information there. Now, what are the, what's the theme? Again, I think these things are important because they just help us think through the pieces of the book that we read in light of a bigger picture because we'll be studying verse by verse. And so it can be easy to get lost sometimes, lose the forest for the trees, as it were. So the historical theme, and the reason I present an historical theme is remember that in our hermeneutic, that is our interpretation of scripture, it is literal, grammatical, historical, and contextual. All those things are important. And so you need to know who the original audience was, and then you need to know the historical situation as Matthew writes, and why he was writing to that original audience. If you miss that, you're going to miss the application, the proper application to you today. You can't just jump to, what does this mean to me today? You need to know what it meant. Why was he presenting those things to his audience? Not that it is always super different. Sometimes it is, though, and so we have to bring out more general applications because the specifics don't apply to us. That's particularly true in the Old Testament. Not so much in the New, but in the Gospels, there are some aspects where that is really true. 
So what was Matthew writing? Why was he writing to his audience in his time? The historical theme is this, to inform believing and unbelieving Jews of Jesus's credentials as King and Messiah, that they might be encouraged to worship and obey Christ and or to repent and believe. He is writing to believing and unbelieving Jews. He is presenting Jesus' credentials as King and Messiah so that they will be encouraged to worship and obey Christ or repent and believe. Remember that the attacks on Jesus didn't just start with the Germans, all right? It didn't just start with modern liberal criticism, right? It started the moment that Jesus showed up on earth, the moment particularly he began his ministry, and then when he ascended back to be with the Father, the attacks really began. And all along the way, there has been an attack, and particularly through or, or from and to the ethnic, Jesus' ethnic people, the Jews. And so he's writing to his people, to ethnic Jews, to say, this is truly the Messiah. To those who already believe that they wouldn't be shaken in their faith, no, this, this is the Messiah. You're believing in the right one, because they were, they were, they were struggling in their faith. Well, because others were coming along, the unbelieving Jews, and saying, that's not the Messiah of the Old Testament. He didn't liberate us from the Romans. He didn't accomplish some of the promises. In fact, many of the promises that we see in the Old Testament, that can't be the right one. And Matthew's saying, no, he is the right one. He is the Messiah. And he's going to explain the present ministry or the, what would be for them the past ministry of Jesus and present to them what Jesus was going to do in the future so they wouldn't get confused. And most particularly, he was tying the person and work of Christ to Old Testament prophecy. Yes, this was predicted. Yes, Jesus did fulfill the Old Testament prophecies. Let me explain that to you. Right? So he's showing them. And guys, this is true certainly for the Jews today, is it not? For God's ethnic people, that they wrestle and struggle. They rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And oftentimes the excuse used is he's not the Messiah the Old Testament predicted because of a misunderstanding of those predictions. But I will say this, and it's going to be very clear to us. It isn't from a spiritualization of those Old Testament predictions. What is everything is already is done in Jesus and there's nothing left as far as the things in the Old Testament. Oh, you just misunderstood that. He didn't really have promises to his ethnic people. He's not really going to establish a kingdom. He's not really going to accomplish those things. What? He's going to do all of that. that Matthew's going to explain all of that. He fulfills both of those things. You have to understand what the Old Testament meant. Jesus is the one who describes, explains, and lives out those things. And historical theme. Now there's a theological theme. This will be second. And what's a theological theme? Uh, that's simply taking universal principles, right? taking what would have been to the original audience, and then essentially applying it to us today. Most of you are not ethnic Jews, and you, didn't, you don't live, certainly, unless you're really old, you didn't live in the time of Christ. Right? So how do we apply this to us today? That's a theological theme. So the theological theme that would, would apply to any person in any country at any time is that Jesus is presented in Matthew as the king of Israel, and the sovereign Lord and Savior of the world who is worthy of all worship and obedience. Right? Jesus is presented as the King of Israel and the sovereign Lord and Savior of the world who is worthy of all worship and obedience. And what's the short theme? If you want to boil all of that down, a theme that you can remember and teach to your children. And so when you think of the book of Matthew, this is the short version. Jesus is the Savior King. Jesus is the Savior King. Now, just king would cover that, but I think it's important for us because sometimes our view of king taints our understanding of Jesus as Savior. He is both, and really it is one office in, in essence. As he is the king, he is the one who saves, the king who saves. But I think it's good to put it this way. Jesus is the Savior king. He didn't, isn't just the one who rules and reigns sovereignly over the universe, directing all things after his will. He is that. But in that, he is the one who saves his people, who saved them from their sins. 
And that's a focus, obviously, of the book of Matthew. So the short theme, Jesus is the Savior King. Now, several characteristics just about this gospel that are somewhat different maybe from the other synoptics. In Matthew, there is more of the teaching of Jesus recorded than in any other gospel. There are five major discourses, as I mentioned, that is major, major presentations of Jesus' preaching, and over 60% of Matthew's 1,071 verses contain, uh, excuse me, over 60% of Matthew, that is 1,071 verses. No, I think, I think it's the other way around. 60% of those 1,071 contain the spoken words of Jesus. It is, for lack of better terms, the uh, red letter gospel. Let me explain that for a minute. In some of your Bibles, you have red letters, which is, these are the words of Jesus. There's nothing wrong with that. It can help you see where Jesus is actually speaking. But I just, I want you to understand that all of Scripture is red letter. That is, it's all weighty. It's all valuable. It's all equally inspired, equally authoritative, and equally sufficient. Because who wrote the words of Jesus? Matthew. Under whose inspiration? The inspiration of the Spirit of God. Everything Matthew wrote is true, not just the words that Jesus said. And there's a huge distinction made at times here. Again, even sometimes in evangelical Christianity, when Jesus said that, Paul said that, there's a difference. Ooh, really? So we're going to just break up our Bible a little bit? Right? No. All that is put in Scripture is authoritative and sufficient. It is a prophecy given to us as men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So just so you remember that, and yet it is a beauty and a joy that what has been preserved for us are so many of the, of the preaching sessions of Jesus. That's a tremendous privilege. It's also, by the way, a tremendous challenge. People say, oh, Jesus, he's an easy preacher. He just always was speaking in little stories, and little kids could run around. I tell you this, that is simply not true. And now little kids could run around and enjoy Jesus himself and could hear the gospel, and yet the things that Jesus spoke as they related to Old Testament things, things to come, the nature of how we're supposed to live, this is going to be a, a joyful and yet deep and challenging time as we try to figure out why did Jesus say that? What did he mean by what he said? And what are we supposed to do? In fact, really, uh, the epistles are written to help us know that. So that's going to help us in those things. By the way, there are also then, secondly, more Old Testament quotes than in any other gospel. 53 direct quotes, most of those prophetic allusions. That is how Jesus fulfills prophecy. And then 76 allusions, that is not direct quotes or even por portions of quotes, but allusions to Old Testament events. Again, that's mainly because Matthew was attempting to tie the work and the personal work of Christ directly to the Old Testament, essentially as an apologetic. And really, Matthew is a good place to take ethnic Jews and others, right? Now, they, they reject the New Testament, but really what Matthew was doing is saying, well, you know, you might try to reject Jesus as Messiah, but understand, again, he's the Old Testament predicted Messiah. Let me show you those predictions. So you can use Matthew to take Jews and others back to the Old Testament and say, look, here were the predictions. Here's what happens in the New Testament. You can't reject the Jesus of the New Testament because he is a Jesus predicted in the Old. All right, now, theology. Right? What, how is Jesus presented? And again, this is big picture. We'll see many other theological uh, all kinds of, of, of various principles that we will learn. Everything from divorce and remarriage all the way up again to the coming of Christ and, and eschatological events, end time events. But focusing on the person of Christ, what is, what is a bit of an overview of what we will learn about Jesus during our study of Matthew? Well, first, Matthew presents Jesus as the promised Messiah or Savior. You know, Messiah means Savior, but I just want you to make sure that you put that down. Right? He presents Jesus as the Savior. And really, back in Matthew 1, if you're still there, it says the record of the genealogy, and again, I read it to you because it's a record, an historical record of the lineage, the historical lineage of Christ, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. 
Right out of the gate, how does Matthew present Jesus? He is the predicted Messiah. He is the Savior, the only one who can save. And we see that in Matthew 1.20 when we, we discussed that uh, last week or really two weeks ago. Matthew 1, verse 20 and 21, when the angel is speaking with Joseph, he says this, but when he, that is Joseph, had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He is the Messiah. He is the only one who can save, and he is the Savior of Israel. It begins with that in the book of Matthew. He's the one who saves, who came to save his ethnic people, the predicted Savior of the ethnic people, Israel, the Jews. However, as we look in the book of Matthew, we see then that Jesus as Savior is then extended out to the Savior of what? Of whom? The entire world. And at the end of Matthew, what do we see? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He is the only Savior. Savior of the Jews, yes. The Savior of the entire world, all who will repent and believe. He is the Savior. And this is how he is presented in the book of Matthew. Additionally, or number two, Jesus is presented as king, and again, specifically and, and focused upon in the book of Matthew as king of the Jews. Again, the ethnic people of God, right? Ethnic Jews, right? Matthew is the only gospel writer, by the way, that uses the term kingdom of heaven rather than kingdom of God. Not that the actual kingdom is different when he mentions kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. Right? But the, the kingdom of heaven is a distinctly Jewish phrase. It grounds Jesus and his kingdom firmly in their Jewish heritage, something that we don't often do today. We read again, and uh, we're not Jews. And there is theology out there that says, well, the Jews don't even matter, and, and the ethnic, you know, it mattered in the Old Testament, doesn't matter now, so we kind of eliminate that. Matthew doesn't. And the study of the gospel is going to have to, have to steep us in an understanding of the ethnic nature of the beginnings of Christianity, the beginnings of, of our faith, as well as the ongoing work that Jesus has for his ethnic people. He's the king of the Jews. He's their promised king. The second description of Jesus in the book of Matthew is what? Son of David. We'll talk about that, the Davidic covenant, and, and, and why. If, if the ethnic nature of Christianity, the ethnic nature of, of, of how God designed his salvation process, if it's unimportant, why is it constantly alluded to? Old Testament, New Testament, all the way into the book of Revelation, the son of David. His ethnic heritage is both a Jew and as the one who had to be part of the royal nature, the royal lineage of the Jews, God's ethnic people. This is emphasized over and over for us to simply wipe it away because we are not ethnically Jews and because God is doing a work in the entire world that does not, that does not ignore his people and yet has set them aside for a period of time, as we will see, doesn't mean he isn't and wasn't and didn't present himself as the king of the Jews. He is their promised king, the son of David. He is their rightful king. Matthew begins with a genealogy to demonstrate that Jesus is the rightful king of Israel. Again, why even bother? If that doesn't matter, that Jesus is the king of his ethnic people, then why have it? It's vitally important. It fulfills the prophecies and not only the prophecies of his first coming, but it's a vitally important part of the prophecies of his second coming and all that he will do in that time as well. He is the rightful king of his ethnic people. Does that mean he's not also the rightful king of all who believe in him, really the rightful king of the universe? But he's never less than the rightful king 
of his ethnic people, the Jews. He's a true descendant of David and thus the rightful heir to the Davidic throne, which never ceases to have consequences, ever, for the, all the way through the eternal state. He will always be the Davidic king, which relates him to his ancestry and to his heritage, his ethnic heritage. He's the promised king. He's the rightful king. But Matthew is also clear to present Jesus as the rejected king. He's rejected by his people, not permanently, as we will see, but in his first coming, rejected by them, really, even as part of the overall plan of God to accomplish his work in the nation. Matthew clearly demonstrates the growing hostility towards and the ultimate rejection of Jesus by his chosen people, that is, as a group, as a whole. Matthew 23, 37, it kind of culminates here right, in Jesus' proclamation. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. It's not undo God's sovereignty. They somehow thwarted him in what he desired. It simply is a proclamation of their unbelief. That is, he comes as their ethnic king, their promised king in the Old Testament, that he is ultimately rejected by them as a nation. So Jesus is presented as the promised Messiah or Savior, the King of the Jews, but also he is presented as the sovereign Lord. Matthew uses the word Lord about 58 times. It doesn't always refer to Jesus in his capacity as God, ruler, master, and king, but oftentimes it does. Matthew 7, 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, master, ruler, king, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And if you read the rest of that text, it says, depart from me, I never knew you because their proclamation of their mouths that he was their king and Lord was not matched by their lives. It was in reality a false profession. And yet that's the meaning of the word master, king, ultimately savior. Matthew 9, 38, therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. He's the one who oversees the ingathering of his own kingdom. Matthew 12, 8, for the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one who rules over. He oversees his own law. He knows what to do with it. And he is the one who fulfills it as well. Matthew 24, 42, therefore be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. He is your master and he is your king. And again, not in all of the uses of the word Lord in the New Testament. It's the Greek word kurios, but it would have been and is related to for the Jewish audience, and it should be for us, to the word Yahweh in the Old Testament. And they would have seen it as that. He is the Lord. He is the one, he, essentially the covenant God of Israel. That is who Jesus was. He's the sovereign Lord, and indeed, he's the sovereign Lord of all. Well, we will also see, and, and somewhat uniquely in the book of Matthew, number four, Jesus as the builder of the church. Matthew 16, 18 says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So Jesus institutes the nature of what the church will be, and really he's the only gospel writer to do so. A lot of fascinating implications there that we'll, that we'll discuss, that Jesus is instituting a new thing. I will build my church on who? The apostles, the New Testament apostles and prophets, as it says in Ephesians. Built on the foundation, we are the household of God. Built on what? The foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The church is not in the Old Testament. The church is in the New. The church is what God does in bringing in the nations. It is his work, and this is presented to us by Jesus himself. He establishes the nature of the church. He establishes himself as the king of the church, and he establishes how he will build his church. It's all laid out for us. It's funny how, how, how much discussion there is about where is the church and what is the church. Jesus himself lays to rest for us the discussion of when the church came to be, what it was going to be, how he was going to build it, and upon whom it would be built. Jesus does this. It's a beautiful thing. 
He's the only gospel writer, by the way, to use the word church, that Greek word, and, and to speak of Jesus as the builder of it. It's Jesus that speaks of him being the builder of it. He goes on to record Jesus' words on how the disciples were to handle even sin in the church in Matthew 18, right? Again, instituting, because the church was a new thing, instituting the way in which you would deal with sin in the church. So Jesus as the builder of the church is presented in Matthew. Also, Jesus as the prophesied prophet. Now, we've spoken much of Jesus as a fulfillment of prophecy. That's pretty clear in the book of Matthew and really in all of the Gospels. Right? Matthew portrays Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecy, but also Matthew very clearly portrays Jesus, and most clearly of all the synoptic Gospels, he presents him as a true prophet, one who predicts his own death, one who continually speaks of his own second coming. He fulfills the prediction of Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, the prophet like Moses that would arise but is infinitely greater than he. And Matthew spends a lot of time giving Jesus a lot of room to make his own prophecies. I mean, we think eschatology, sometimes it gets kind of removed to the back end of our theology. Really, Jesus didn't think so. And, in, and he spends a whole discourse, 20 through 25, laying out his own prophetic word on coming events. Now, that's going to be fascinating when we get there. We might start studying that now. It's going to be powerful and joyful. But Jesus is a prophet. Don't forget that. He's prophet and priest and king. And Matthew presents him to us very clearly as a prophet, one who both foretells God's word and foretells it. Jesus knows the future, right? And he is a prophet who proclaims it faithfully and properly. So Jesus as the prophesied prophet, and then Jesus as the coming king. Jesus is not at all shy about predicting his own second coming, and Matthew makes this very clear. Again, in chapters 24 through 25, Matthew records in great detail the words of Christ concerning his second advent. Matthew 25, 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, and on and on. The discussion, again, of Jesus as the coming king and his fulfillment of the prophecies that were made in the Old Testament that were not fulfilled in his first coming, Jesus is very clear about it. He doesn't shy away from that. Nor does he simply say, well, I did it all, and there's nothing else left to do. He says, I'm coming back because there's my kingdom to establish. I'm coming back because there's work to be done. I'm coming back because there are promises that in the Old Testament that yet need to be fulfilled. So all of these we will see. I hope this excites you. But more than, and really far beyond making you excited about studying these things, my prayer is that this makes you excited about looking like Jesus, about believing what Jesus said, about having your life changed by who he was, what he did, what he said, and the fact that he will certainly return again. He's coming. And he is this king. He is the builder of his church. He is the Lord of the universe. He is the, the king of his ethnic people, fulfilling all promises to them. He is the one who fulfills everything that was laid out in the Old Testament and all that is promised in the New. And this should change every part of your life. Does it and has it? And maybe this last Christmas, New Year's season was a good way for you to judge how much Jesus has changed your life. How different were you? How different were you from the world? Oh, I don't mean that you, you know, and if you had a tree up and if you did presents, that's not the issue. What was the tone and character and nature of your life as lived over during the celebration time? Noticeably different, focused upon Christ, honoring him and glory, glorifying, it, glorifying him, even in the midst of your enjoyment of family celebrations. How about in your discussion of and work through the difficulties that you faced over these couple months? Because some of you didn't have an easy celebration, as it were, of Christmas time. It was difficult maybe the most difficult time of year for you. 
How different was it in light of this Jesus, in light of the Jesus of the Bible, of the Gospel of Matthew? Was everything changed? Your perspective on life, the way you approached your family, the way you approached the opening of your presence and the enjoyment of your food. What does the Bible say? Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. And there is no glory to God apart from Christ. None. Was he on your lips? Was he in your heart? Was your passion for him? Did you fight to have that in the midst of a world that tried to steal it and focus you on everything else? Your own pain, your own difficulty, even your own joys, the things that you accomplished or the things that you got. Not that those things can't be enjoyed and not that pains and griefs are somehow false or eliminated because of the person of Christ. They're all sold there. They're, they're all focused upon giving him glory in the midst of those things. Is that what these weeks were like for you? I pray that that was true. Because that's the Jesus we're studying. It's not, a, it's not theological introspection. There's an understanding of the person and work of Christ that our lives would bring him the glory that he so richly deserves. So as we prepare for communion, let me just ask you these questions in light of what we are learning, have learned, and will learn. What is your view of Christ this morning? Deliverer, Savior, Lord, King, or perhaps a somewhat distant object of childhood belief and maybe even a distant object of present allegiance. Oh, I believe in him. But his impact upon you is light. The King of the universe is never light. And communion helps us to understand that in, in, a, in a tremendously powerful way. Will you allow your passion for Christ to be fueled by his word, your need and his glorious provision, or will it be obscured in the multitude of distractions that this world has to offer. The king will not be obscured. He must not be. One day he will appear as he truly is. Why not worship him and serve him and honor him as that now? That's what he gives you the privilege and opportunity of doing. What a blessing. Will King Jesus, the risen Savior and Lord, be your one consuming passion in 2014? For he is worthy of it. And there's no better way to begin to prepare for that and with maybe some repentance this morning where that has not been the case and rejoicing this morning where it hadn't. Thank you for joining us today and we pray that you have been blessed by the teaching of God's word. Please join us again at the same time, at the same place, to continue our study in the book of Matthew. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church and many of the ministries that we offer, please visit us online at gracemerville.org. That is gracemerville.org. Online, you will be able to not only learn more about Grace Community Church, but you will also be able to access our full audio archives with complete messages by Pastor Chris Reiser. Until next time, we pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling.